0: Hi Aaron, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Hi Alicia, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat.
0: Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate?
1: Sure, so I grew up in Chicago, um, so being in the Midwest that means there's lots of meat and potatoes and also um, a decent amount of Italian food, so like spaghetti was a regular occurrence lasagna um, we had every so often sort of when my mother decided to go through the production of making lasagna Um, but then there's also like meatloaf and pot roasts and roast chicken and things like that Um, but also I am from an African-American family so we grew up with lots of soul food like fried chicken and smothered pork chops and collard greens and macaroni and cheese, candied sweet potatoes. So those are also very regular occurrences.
0: And what inspired you to get into food? Because I know it wasn't your your first career.
1: Yeah, so um, my first career was working in finance and sort of shortly into that, like literally only four or five months after I started working, I decided that I needed a hobby, and I had always had an interest in food um, because I love sort of the creativity, I love the way like cooking could bring joy to those that I was able to feed. Um, So I just started a blog as a hobby, something to do in my free time. This was back in 2009, so, like, blogs were just sort of getting started. I was like, oh, I can do this. Keep in mind, like, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, But then just the passion and the interest just sort of grew from there to the point where I went to culinary school, and then I graduated and quit my job in finance all the same week, and I haven't looked back in the eight years since.
0: Did you work in restaurants after culinary school?
1: Yes. So after culinary school, I took an internship at um, Food Arts Magazine, which was more of like an industry focused restaurant um, publication. And I did that uh, Monday through Friday, nine to five, um, but it was unpaid. So partly because I wanted to make some money, but also partly because um, going into food media, people had said it would be good to get actual restaurant experience. I started working at a place called Northern Spy Food Company um, in the East Village in New York on the weekends. So I was working seven days a week for about four months. Um, And then after, unsuccessfully trying to get like an editorial assistant job elsewhere that paid. I ended up just uh, staying on at the restaurant full time for about a year total.
0: Wow, and and do you think that working in a restaurant has given you a very different perspective as a restaurant, as a food writer, than people who haven't worked in the service industry?
1: Definitely. Um, I think it's one of those cases of Sure, anyone in theory can write about food and restaurants, but um, having that firsthand knowledge makes you um, that much more adept at asking questions and sort of getting to more of the, some, some of the nuances um, for when you're interviewing chefs and managers and servers and things like that.
0: Right. And so you started your blog 2009. You didn't really expect it to turn into your career, but it kind of has, right? And so how have you kind of grown and maintained it over the years?
1: Uh, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I had no clue what I was doing, why I was doing it, where it would go. Um, But it was just one of those things that I slowly and steadily just kept chugging along at um i feel like there are a lot of sort of better quote-unquote bloggers out there in terms of like they're constantly putting out content constantly like growing page views and all that stuff which is great for them but um like all the way up until i guess the pandemic happened i've always had a full-time job and like the blog was always just my hobby which transformed to like a actual part-time job that i spend lots of time on now um but yeah it's been quite a journey over the past almost 11 years now um but i think sort of after a few years of seeing like people turn it into their careers like it sort of gave me that drive and um pushed me to just grow and learn more and do better with my own blog
0: right and I feel like you have a very specific style like I I think so many people you know focus on different types of cuisine but yours is just very you um and so how do you approach deciding what you're going to create in terms of recipes and then also what is your developing process for for recipes
1: so in terms of what I am going to create a lot of it is just like what I want to (laughs) eat what I think will taste good Um, because of like sort of who I am I went to coloring school so I have uh, sort of classic French techniques I grew up in the Midwest eating soul food so like comfort food is sort of the base of a lot of what I like to do and cook and eat Uh, but also living in New York City there's a global sort of array of cuisines at my fingertips that I like to explore and experiment with every once in a while and sort of incorporate the occasional like ingredient or flavor profile I haven't necessarily grown up with but I've tried and I'm intrigued and I'm trying to find ways to sort of Incorporate that with what I'm used to doing.
0: Okay.
1: Um, in terms of developing recipes, it's sort of like a variety of ways. It could be I come across an ingredient that I'm not familiar with and I just have like a natural curiosity. Um, that comes like my recipes and my food. Like if there's something I don't know, then I want to know about it and try to learn how to use it. Um, so, like, with Um, one of my recent recipes were rye chocolate chip cookies like this was the beginning of the pandemic I couldn't find regular flour I saw some rye flour so I was like hmm let's see what I can do with this and that's how sort of that recipe was born but also there are times when I think of other dishes and I see people out there that um, have like all this equipment or all this space or all these like fancy ingredients and i try to keep my recipes simple in the preparation uh, or strip out things that aren't necessary to the finished result or don't have as huge of an impact just simplify things make dishes full of flavor and hopefully not too difficult to prepare
0: uh, you mentioned finding rye flour instead of, you know, all-purpose to do cookies. How has the pandemic changed your cooking in, generally, if at all?
1: Um, hmm. I think one way that it's changed my cooking is that um, I used to go to the farmer's market at least, like, once or twice a week and sort of walk through and pick up things, um, just, like, whatever was abundant and, looked beautiful that I wanted to, like, take home and cooking. Um, but since the pandemic started, I'm making just fewer trips to the grocery store. and I hadn't gone to the green market since March until, like, last week, so... <laughs> it's just, like, what I am able to get has changed and also just the fact of like shopping for a week versus a couple days that changes what I purchase
0: right what What have been some changes that you've made to your own your own general cooking um to accommodate that
1: um I've tried to make better use of like pantry ingredients so like beans and rice and pasta Um, and then I also like try to force myself to um, just cook from what I already have on hand because there's always times when it's like oh it would be really nice to make xyz like that's what I want I'm gonna go out and make buy those ingredients and make this when in reality is like I have tons of other things at home that I couldn't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that I may not have wanted to but I'm like okay I'm gonna try to make something with what I have here
0: Right. I think everyone is still doing a version of chopped at home. Um, I've been doing that too. (laughs) I've been like, I would make a big order of like local produce and then I'd be like, I'm not making another order until we use all of this. And so it, it ends up being kind of unhealthy because then I like eat all the greens and then there's no greens left and then it's just like well whatever we're gonna we're surviving on eggplant and yucca for the next week as our only vegetables and it doesn't matter um i don't know it's like but yeah it's 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 very interesting the the accommodations that we've had to make um for for this situation but the show must go on yeah and like
1: in the beginning. <laughs> In the beginning, I had bought some like canned vegetables for the first time in years um, because I don't know I sort of overprepared for the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> um, but they were like ended up just sitting there for the longest time, and like I didn't use one of those them until like a couple weeks ago when I was just sort of like okay, I have these here, and need to just sort of get through some of the stuff that I have just to yeah not waste anything
0: no for sure I mean I think people have been talking about canned vegetables again in a way that no no one has in a while um I remember I interviewed Joe Yonan about Cool Beans uh, at the start of the year when it came out Mm -hmm. and he was like you know, we never talk about anything else in a can except beans, you know, maybe tomatoes. And it's like, I think now everyone is just like, so is, is open again to the idea of like, well, maybe canned corn isn't so bad. <laughs> like, Maybe I should, <laughs> maybe I should eat green beans from a can. Um, which actually I had my ex-boyfriend, when I was a teenager, his family was really into canned green beans. And like, they had this really interesting metallic taste that I'll never forget um (laughs) but yeah uh, i don't actually want to eat those again um but it's good to know they're there um so there's also been all these changes in food media during the pandemic you know the bon appetit situation the peter Meehan situation um we'll just call them situations um in terms of um people um leaving their jobs which you know those of us in the industry we've kind of been like twiddling our thumbs waiting for it to happen and then you know tammy Teclamarian made it happen um but you know what do these changes look like to you and and what's your perspective on how this actually might change food media i know you had been working at the michelin guide you know kind of before the pandemic right and so from your mm-hmm. per- perspective, you know, what is what is the actual possibility of this moment?
1: Um, I think the possibility is very great for the actual change that many people have wanted and talked about wanting and said they've wanted for a while. Um, just in terms of new leadership that's more um uh, diverse and inclusive and representative of the country that we live in and the people that occupied and work in the food spaces um but i'm a little pessimistic um in that i guess the people who are still like making those decisions to hire these new leads for teams and editors and chiefs and senior editors and such, they I don't know if they are willing to go as far as we should be going I'm sort of like thinking right now about the Bone Appetit situation in terms of they are bringing in Marcus Samuelson to sort of guest edit for, I don't know, a couple of months, um, which is like, okay, that's great, but what's going to happen after that? Right. Like, why not hire one of the, like, numerous people of color, um, very, like, senior experienced food editors that were qualified for the job, like, have them actually, like, implement real change. It just seems, I don't know, like smoke and mirrors. No. Like, ooh, look at this shiny thing, Marcus, (laughs) that we brought in, like, just don't think that we actually haven't brought anyone full time to do this for the foreseeable future.
0: Right. No, it seems like Condé Nast specifically thinks that it can get away with some shiny guest editors for a little while, you know, and, and hopefully pay them a nice rate for doing the work. but. Um, it's not a long-term solution. I think they're waiting for everyone to stop paying attention um, and hiring these guest editors to kind of be a stopgap um, while they wait for everyone to turn their gaze away from uh, the the poor work they've been doing and, and the ways in which they have um, marginalized their, their labor force and continue to do so clearly. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting um, to watch how predictable the actions are on behalf of, of, of Condé Nast. It's, it's, you know, it's like, wow, you really had the whole world watching and you just, that's what you did. You, you didn't pay anyone enough money and they all quit. And now what are you going to do? You know, uh, it's, it's really interesting.
1: Yeah. And I'm very curious to see, they keep talking about, oh, we have some new talent that we're bringing into the test kitchen. I'm extremely curious, like, who exactly agreed to do that?
0: Right. But at the same time, it's like, can we fault whoever they are because it's a paycheck, you know, and like we're in an industry that's falling apart? True. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it's like I, I really respect everyone who's come out and said, you know, Bon Appetit asked me to come and do this. And I said no because of X, Y and Z. But at the same time, you know, whatever young, hungry people they probably got to to do that are people who needed not just the exposure, but probably the money. And, yeah, it's just it's such a difficult, awful situation. And it's all Created by these these suits at Conte Conté Nas, um, <laughs> yeah. But it's it's interesting, and I I, I hope it, we see some changes. I think people have been paying attention more to independent stuff. I'm sure has your blog been you know more popular of late because you know you've people are looking for other sources for recipes.
1: Mm-hmm. Um So my blog, I think traffic doubled at the start of the pandemic just because people were looking for more recipe content um and then it continued to grow after that once all the um murders and movements and such sort of continued to happen and sort of resurfaced a lot of the discussion around um supporting uh black creators and things like that so I've gotten a lot of attention and new eyeballs within the past couple of months which is great on the one hand but it's also like I've literally been doing this for right. over 10 years <laughs> so
0: yeah no I've had this conversation yeah with Stephen Satterfield from Whetstone of just like it's it, it's an it's in a double-edged um sword in terms of the attention um these days that people are getting but um yeah
1: but like overall i welcome the attention of course like, sure. <laughs> give me more page views and followers and likes because in the end like having my own platform um like those metrics help me get more money and help me survive. So. Right,
0: right, and and
1: bring on the animals,
0: so. <laughs> no. And I think it's so important too. We're seeing how how significant it is to have one's own platform, like something that follows you. You know, no matter what you're doing, like what your blog has been for for so long, for eleven years, where no matter where you were working or who you were writing for, you always had your own uh, platform for yourself, and that's proven. Um, at this you know difficult time in the industry to be you know absolutely critical mm-hmm. yeah and for you is cooking a political act oh <laughs> i've been
1: like thinking about this question <laughs> since you asked me to be on the podcast <laughs> um so my answer is the short answer is yes with an asterisk um And I say that because, like, food, to me, is obviously political, and it always has been from, like, its involvement, like, in spice trades to sort of shaping whole um, economies and civilizations to sort of its impact on enslaving people to sort of take their agricultural knowledge and use them to grow and harvest crops to even today with, like, government subsidies, which dictates the value of certain foods and um, things like that. So food is political. So I think sort of by way of food being what is needed for cooking, cooking is also political. Um, But I believe there's times when it's overtly political like um, in terms of selling box lunches for to fund the civil rights movement or sort of the Black Panthers free breakfast program for kids or um, even today like the Bakers Against Racism um, sort of fundraiser um, and like feeding the resistance with like fuel the people and things like that so those are sort of the explicit choices that people have made to make cooking political. But I think that there are tons of people who participate in the system but don't have any um, sort of agency to have impact. So they might be cooking sort of like capitalism. You participate in it because you have no other choice to do it so i think people cook and it is political but they don't have any power to make impact or sometimes they're sort of unknowingly having an impact like oh i bought this x y and z but i don't know necessarily like where was grown or who grew it like whether those people were paid equitably and things like that so um It is political, uh, but I think for people, sometimes we can choose to make it political, uh, and sometimes we participate in cooking without control over our impact uh, on society.
0: right. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.